0: So I was reading uh, an article online recently about what is thought to be the most disastrous contract ever signed in American business history. The year is 2001 and two massive entertainment conglomerates were considering a merger, AOL and Time Warner. AOL, of course, also known as America Online, for those who are old enough to remember, specialized in advertising revenue from their huge online subscribers network, while Time Warner was sitting on top of the largest cable infrastructure uh, and media catalog. Uh, It was thought to be a massive success for all parties when it started. But things began to unravel rather quickly. First, when the year 2000 came along, financial markets were just rocked by what had come to be known as the dot-com bust, a season when so many internet startup companies were failing left and right. And the market plunge dried up AOL's ad revenues rather severely. Not only that, there was this brand new thing called broadband Internet, which made people want to get away from the old dial-up signal that we used to get from AOL. And then finally, and actually least foreseeable, it turns out that the, the employees in the merger hated each other, could not get along. Time Warner employees thought the AOL workers were too brash and too arrogant while the AOL employees looked at the Time Warner employees as if they were too siloed, you know, too resistant to change. Well, the estimates of the failure of this merger vary, but the article I was reading estimated that some $200 billion in shareholder value was lost in the years after the merger. What's my point? Well, my point is, is that you don't have to have experienced the powerful heartache of a failed business merger in order to feel the sting and the pressure of uncertainty in the world. We want really badly for our dreams to come true. We want 2.3 children and live in the suburbs. We we want a club membership or whatever the badge of success is that our world offers you. So we work. We invest. we, We plan. We carefully mark out the path. But we do something more than that, don't we? We also sign contracts. If you think about it, a contract is something that you employ in order to try to take some of the uncertainty out of life. For instance, you could imagine a landlord wants to make some money off the property that she has for sale. So she rents it out to some students. But she wants to make certain that she'll get her investment out of it. So what she does is she makes her tenants sign a contract to insure herself against future uncertainty. That's, that's what a contract is intending to do. Well, it might surprise you that the Bible actually talks about contracts also, at least in its own way. Uh, you know, Instead of using the word contract, however, it uses another word that we call the covenant. It's a great Bible word, often familiar, but I don't think we ever really fully grasp how important it is to us as individuals. Because in the Bible, a covenant is a bond. It's an alliance. It's a connection that is made in blood, by the way, and overseen by a sovereign party. And of course, God is the one who is the sovereign who administers and set the terms of that particular covenant. Well, in the story that we just read, we are at the tail end of this cataclysmic natural disaster, the greatest in all of human history, that we know as the Great Flood. We saw last week that God had judged the world for its demonic attempts to thwart God's plan to bring a Savior through the seed of the woman. And what followed was a 40-day deluge of water that saw only one person and his family saved throughout. That was Noah. But what you might not know, however, is that the features and storylines of that flood story actually are echoed in Hyperlink's throughout the rest of the Bible. But for our purposes this morning, I simply want you to consider the mindset that Moses and his children had as they stepped off that boat. I mean, what must they have been thinking? Probably in the back of their mind it was like, well, that was intense. (laughs) Um, Wow, What, what exactly do we have by ways of assurances and certainty that the world around us is not going to kill us? And so God lays out a contract. He lays down a covenant whereby all who come to read the story can have certainty about what's to come. Look, we're in this series while we're looking through Genesis and we're looking at the origins of how a Christian looks at the world. And this morning we find that a Christian has a foundation to look at the world with with certainty. We have a foundation for certainty about the future, something I would argue is rather sorely lacking in our world, which has no real experience uh, with certainty in this particular way. So what can we learn about this covenant? I suggest three things this morning. We want to look to see, we find certainty about the world. We find certainty about justice. And then finally, certainty about ourselves. Let's look at that first one, certainty about the world. Okay. Again, Noah and his family step off the boat and immediately, right out of the gate, they're offered a brand new beginning. Did you catch that in verse one? It's repeated in verse seven. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That should sound familiar the same exact phrase that uh, God told to Adam so many generations prior. He's saying, I want you to live and thrive in this world. Take dominion over it. Take delight in it. What's more interesting though that makes it different from the promise to, uh, to Adam is the graciousness of it, by the way. We didn't have time to read it, but a couple of verses prior, God makes it clear that judging the world through the flood had not finally and decisively gotten rid of all the evil and sin in the world back in chapter 8 verse 21 it says this I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth yeah that's right that's after we got rid of all the bad people in the flood God knows that the problem of sin still rests in Noah and yet he's still concerned to bless him and determined to do so. By the way, keep studying the story of Noah. I think you'll find like I did that there are gospel fingerprints all over that story. It's wonderful. And so God is promising that this world, this, which only months prior, by the way, had upturned and destroyed human life, is never going to do so again. And God makes this promise, a covenant, that he's not going to do that anymore. From now on, he says, you can have a measure of certainty about the world around you. I will not rob you of your sense of place, which I would argue is essential to our humanity. Why does he do that? Well, start with the animals. Now he says in verse 2, the animals are going to be afraid of you. In other words, when God makes this covenant with Noah, he doesn't make it just with Noah, but also with the whole creation, with every single living creature. And so, what you have here is the foundation, as it were, uh, the platform of how a Christian looks at the created world around them, or how we might say, the environment. God is now contractually bound to protect the earth. Look what he says in verse thirteen. He says, "I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth." In other words, God has to make promises about his relationship with the earth. (laughs) because, frankly, he knows what we are capable of doing with it. In other words, the protection that God is affording to the world is given because of our sin. There's something that is going on in the mass of human sin and the rebellion against God that's hurting the world around us. Now, look, some of you should have bells going off right now because of what we know and we read in Romans chapter 8, just this last spring in our series Through Romans. Remember when Paul in chapter 8, verse 19 and following says this? He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, now being the time of Jesus' arrival. What's the point? The point is, is that in the covenant in, with Noah, God is saving the world from us, <laughs> the very people that were put to be in charge of taking care of it. It's as if God is saying, look, I love the forests. I love everything I've made. I love sunsets. I love, I love mountain vistas. I love beaches and animals. And I've put humans in the world to take care of it. But if those humans make a decision to rape and pillage it all, I'm simply not going to let that happen. And so Jesus' followers are on this mission, we hope, to work with God's intention and be a participant in him with a care for this world. Why? Because we want to daydream about what Paul means in Romans 8, that somehow the beauty that we see now is the beauty under frustration. This is beauty under sin. What will it look like then? That's what drives a Christian. So you have this Christian view of dealing with the environment, and I would find it—I found it in my study—a very nuanced approach. I heard one preacher put it this way. He said you can contrast people's view of the environment by a typical Western approach, Western culture, versus an Eastern approach. He said the Western views of the environment will always look at the world around them through a pragmatic lens. That is, you know, we have to take care of the earth because, you know, if we don't, we won't have the resources that we need for us to be happy in the midst of it. It's a pragmatic view, but that's always going to lead to these endless debates about whether or not the science speaks in this direction or that direction. How do we deal with climate change? All those constant things are still referenced on us, on how we protect ourselves. It's a selfish pursuit in Western culture. In Eastern culture, it's a different idea. They view the environment as this living, almost sacred thing. Years ago, I had a conversation with a Unitarian who was trying to convince me that all of creation was sacred. And again, I wish I was clever enough to have said it at the time, but if you think about that, if everything is sacred, then nothing's sacred. In other words, if a human being is no more sacred than a tree or a dog, There really is nothing that's actually sacred. It's possible to define things out of existence if you really think about it. But we know that's not true, don't we? Look, here's the point. It's only a Christian that can look at the world and say, hey, this is my Father's world, and he has granted me a measure of authority over that world, and I have to care for it despite my sin and my constant temptation to abuse and exploit it. Christians take care of the environment because their God is in covenant with it. I think that is incredibly radical and probably the only way to live in a world without abusing it on the one hand or deifying it on the other. You see the difference? So we have this sense of the covenant establishing a certainty of the the world with the world. That is, you and I have a sense of place We know that our place is secure and kept. But secondly, what we find is we can also have certainty about justice. This is just as big. Because what we find here is God saying to Noah, I am establishing a deep significance to all life. Anything that has blood pumping through its veins will never have that blood taken from it needlessly. Animals are not to be killed without purpose. And even when they are, God's people are to stay away from that blood. Not because they're afraid of it for any reason, but because that blood is sacred, he'll say. But the blood of humans is not to be shed at all. One human being may not decide to take the life of another. God is the Lord of all of life. And so here what you have is this foundation for the Bible's consistent prohibition to do anything that robs another image bearer Of their life. Christians exist to preserve life and innocent human beings have an inviolable God-given right not to be deliberately killed. It's rooted here. And so in this covenant, God actually lays down for us even the rationale for the demand. Look at verse six. It says there, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, for a moment can i get you to set aside what likely appears to you to be the clearest support for whatever side of the political hot button issue you find this passage speaks to you about there are those on the one hand who will say aha man is created in the image of god so therefore we never have the right to take that life in capital punishment because it can never be done fairly and with the certainty of all the facts being known while there are others that will say aha <laughs> This is absolute warrant from Scripture that the death penalty is useful for the maintenance of justice in human societies. All I can say to you this morning is, as I have researched this passive and found passage and found that there are Bible-believing people who have high views of Scripture that come down on either side of that thing. But for our discussion this morning, let's set that aside. Because the emphasis of the text is clearly on the value of human life and especially human blood. Why? Because man is created in God's image. I read one commentator who put it this way. He said, it is as if God is saying, human beings have a nature in such a way that they mirror me. They reflect who I am. They show forth more of my glorious attributes than even the mountains and the ocean and all their grandeur do. They image me. They know me in some way. They reflect me. That's what it means to be in the image of God. In other words, every human being is so precious to God that he's saying, I am going to hold accountable anyone who abuses them. doesn't matter if they're black, if they're white, if they're smart or they're common, if they're rich or they're poor, whatever. They are all reflections of God's glory. And he says, I will not stand idly by while someone abuses them. And so God hence establishes this prohibition against murder. Now, what's fascinating about this is we're mostly talking about humans' bodies and their blood. What about their souls? Well, i dug up this little gem from um, John Calvin on the topic from his Institutes in chapter 8 in book 2. He says this, he says, To be clear of the crime of murder, it's not enough to refrain from shedding man's blood. If in act you perpetrate, if in endeavor you plot, If in wish and design you conceive what is adverse to another's safety, you have the guilt of murder. On the other hand, if you do not according to your means and opportunity study to defend his safety, by that inhumanity you also violate the law. And then he finishes with this little zinger. He says, but if the safety of the body is so carefully provided for, we may hence infer how much care and exertion is due to the safety of the soul which is of immeasurably higher value in the sight of God. Did you catch that? (laughs) What Calvin is saying is, is this covenant does not just apply to those who might physically abuse other people, but it also includes spiritual abuse, anything that might be done to the damage of another soul. Spiritual abuse, psychological abuse, mental abuse. Look, my premise is this. It's only in Christianity do you finally have a truly radical motivation to seek justice in the world around you. Yes, social justice. I don't know how that became a bad word in our context, by the way. Racial justice, the simple impulse to know that we must take care of the elderly, that we are as Christians to seek out the marginalized in our neighborhoods, to to take care of the dying as they are on their way home to heaven. Why? Because that person that I am either maligning and taking down or blessing and taking care of bears the image of God and therefore is in covenant with the living God. And for that reason, I owe them my good treatment and efforts to relieve their suffering. Like there is no other worldview that comes close to that, nothing that's quite that strong. So there's certainty about the world and certainty about justice. Finally, there's certainty about ourselves. Because it brings me to my last point, because I think we're living a time where We've never been more confused than we are about justice. There's a lot of people rising up and crying out for one way to be done this way and the other way. But I think what that speaks to is the fact that you really can't hope for people to possess a sense of place in the world or to feel that there is justice being done on their behalf or for others until you deal with a radical insecurity in the heart of every single person. This is key. <laughs> If you don't have something inside of you, a solid center, there is no way for you to care for those around you. Think about this for a moment. The only people that are desperate to find food are the poor. The only people who commit crimes to steal are the people with nothing. And the only people who panic about their welfare are the sick. And the only people who abuse those around them through anger and malice and cruelty or maybe even physical violence the only people that do that are those who are lacking in themselves. There is something inside. There is a need that is present in every human heart that must be the foundation of care for others. But the question is what is that need? What is that insecurity? What is the poverty of soul that has to be attended to? Well, I think in order to understand this, you have to look at the imagery behind the rainbow. And my guess is for many of you, you've misread this passage all your life. Let me see if I can explain. The first thing to note in this passage is that the word that you and I associate with the word rainbow doesn't appear anywhere in this passage. Nowhere. The ESV, the English Standard Version, the translation that we prefer to use in our uh, readings here, um, as actually has it correct. Because the word it literally is bow, not rainbow. Rainbow. In other words, of the 75 different times that that word is used throughout the Old Testament, it's always translated as a war bow, like a bow and arrow bow, right? So now you see what God is saying. God is saying, I have now set down my warrior's bow. I'm not going to approach you in armed conflict anymore. That's what the passage is saying. <laughs> it's astounding. Tim Keller says there's two things to note here. He says, first of all, have you ever noticed that you only get a rainbow after a storm? The significance of the rainbow is it always follows a storm. And I really feel like that touches where we all live. How many of us would look and say, yeah, the gospel never came home to me until my sin came home to me. That I suddenly realized that the biggest storm that I had to grapple with was the storm of my fearful realization that my sin was not just a mistake, but a treasonous assault against the holiness of God. That's what it was. In other words, there was a bitter rivalry that has to be ended between God and me before I can ever have any kind of peace of soul. That was the storm. And my guess is you've been experiencing that storm for many of you. But secondly, Keller notes, it's not just that there's a storm, but everybody acknowledges the beauty of the rainbow, don't they? Rainbows are just beautiful. Even non-religious people get giddy whenever they see a rainbow. But the question Keller entertains is, is, what is the beauty of a rainbow in the eyes of a Christian? Okay, well, think about that imagery for a second. If the bow is being set down, when God sets down his bow and arrow bow, as it arches in the sky, do you see that the direction that would fly from its hold are now facing... And that's not insignificant because now it means that the arrows of God's justice are now pointing at him and not us any longer. And preachers have been making note of this for a long time. My favorite, of course, is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the old British preacher from the late 19th century. When he was preaching on this passage, he noted that if Noah had looked carefully carefully, And understood the meaning of the battle bow in the sky. He could have put this all together to see what God was up to in the distant future. Listen to what he says. He says, again, in the rainbow and in Christ, I see vengeance satisfied. Is not the bow the symbol of the warrior's power? With far-reaching arrows, he draws the string and woe unto his enemies. When a hero hangs up his bow upon the wall, what does he mean but that the warfare is over and peace is proclaimed? When he loosens the bow and leaves it without string and without an arrow, he means that he will no more go out to hunt his adversaries. His arrow shall no more be drunk with the blood of the slain. He sets the bow aside, hangs it up on high, and leaves it unstrung without an arrow. Such is the meaning of the rainbow. You see the beauty of what he's saying? Spurgeon thinks that Noah should have been able to put all this together. My question is, can you put this all together? Can you see the significance? Because the people of God would learn from God's covenant with Noah that life is connected to blood. And blood is precious. But when God is satisfied with his justice... He lays down his bow and he ceases his war, his war with us. There is no more blood shedding once the ultimate blood shedding is done. And my premise this morning is it's only if you have this in your soul can you fill up what is lacking inside of a poisonous insecurity that is ultimately at the root of your hatred of each other. We hate one another because of a boiling insecurity that that has not been answered for. I was reading a story online that apparently circulated among a bunch of uh, ancient monastic communities about a very vicious warlord who intimidated whole villages, sending the entire population into the hills to hide in caves. One day the warlord entered a small village and he asked, I assume all the people have fled by this time? One of his lieutenants approached and said, well, all but one monk who refuses to flee. Well, the warlord threw himself into a rage and said, bring him to me immediately. And when they dragged the old monk into the square before the commander, the commander shouted at him and said, do you not know who I am? I am he who could run you through with a sword and never bat an eye. The old monk gazed up at the warlord and replied, And do you not know who I am? I am he who can let you run me through with a sword and not bat an eye. Now here's the thing. We all wish we were like that guy, don't we? Because that's the certainty in life that we want. If I was that certain about my life, I would have that kind of courage. I want to be steadfast. I want to be immovable. In a word, I want to be certain. The only way to get that, God is saying through Noah, is through the blood. It's only going to be through the blood. Uh, I I had a chance to travel this week. I was in Houston, uh, Texas, for a uh, uh, a board meeting. And so it meant I got to spend some time in airports. Not my favorite time. But on a particularly long layover, I had a chance to sort of observe the difference between the people at the gate There are certain people that have their tickets and they're there for whatever reason, but there's other people that you can tell are regular business travelers. You know who you are. These are the people who are really trying to catch the earlier flight. Yeah, they got their ticket for the later one, but maybe, just maybe I can get on this flight. And so they go on what is known as the standby list. You can always tell it's on the standby list. You're flying Delta, they put it up on this screen if you're on the standby list. But you know what I noticed? I noticed the difference between the people with the tickets Versus the people on standby. You know, the people with the tickets are so chill. They got it covered. They're a little bored, playing a game on their phones, maybe listening to some headphones. But man, those people on standby, man, they are pacing back and forth. They're fidgeting all over the place. They're wringing their hands. They, they keep going up to the desk for confirmation that they're still on the list. And I thought, well, what an, what an entirely different experience of flying do the ticketed have from those that are on standby? And I thought, ooh, that actually works. (laughs) Now look, you're going to have to wait until, until late November before we get into Genesis 15 and see exactly how the blood works to secure a Christian's confidence. But suffice to say this, if you don't have the blood, you don't have the ticket. If you lack something else and you don't understand the covenant, then you are on standby. That is at the root of your anxiety. That is at the root of your fear. That is at the root of all of the uncertainty that I have before me is a hand-wringing hope that maybe, just maybe, I'm on the list. Maybe you came here this morning to check this board. Is that what church is for you? We're all on standby. That's where the anxiety is coming from. But in the covenant, in the covenant, God says, no, no, I got you a ticket. And it's the ticket in my blood. And there's nothing more valuable that could secure your certainty. So my advice to you this morning, if you're wondering whether you're on standby or not, is to follow the rainbow. Not to the end where there's a pot of gold or something ridiculous like that. But actually follow the path of the arrow into the heart of God and Jesus on that cross. Because that is the only place where any real certainty can ultimately be had. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have to lead us into that because our sight is blackened. It's it's covered over, encrusted, as it were, with fears and anxieties and things that we don't know for certain. What's going to happen tomorrow? We don't know. Are we healthy? Are we sick? Some of us even wonder whether the world will fall away. We're grateful this morning, at least for the witness of Noah's covenant, that you you have guaranteed us a place. You've guaranteed the safety of our world, even against our attempts to undo it. You've guaranteed us justice that one day you will make all things right. But you've also guaranteed our souls by your blood. And so, Father, we hold the blood sacred in the same way that you encourage these original hearers to do so. We hold the blood sacred so that we can lift our voices and sing as those who have indeed been plunged in Jesus' blood and know ourselves to be owned by him. There is no greater certainty. Lead us into it by your spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.